0: Good morning. Good, morning. Good morning. I bring greetings from Woodside Community Church in Woodside, Queens. My name is Pastor Mike and I'm, I'm happy to be here. I'm happy to see so many smiling faces. You must have had your coffee this morning because, you know, sometimes on Sunday morning, some of you guys aren't used to getting up. But I'm glad you got up this morning and I pray it's the start of something fantabulous for you if this is something you're not normally uh, or not accustomed to doing. If I were to title this sermon, I would title it, Don't Chase the Wind. Don't Chase the Wind. So I'm going to ask you to open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 5, beginning at at verse 1. In your pew Bibles, that's page 759, if you didn't bring your Bibles with you. Page 759 in the pew Bibles, right in front of you. And that's Matthew chapter 5, beginning at verse 1. For today's sermon... I have a ton of questions for you. That's right, questions. And some of the answers will come from Scripture, but some of the answers you will find within yourselves. And my goal is that by the end of this sermon, your hunger and thirst for Christ and his righteousness righteousness will increase by the glory of God, or for the glory of God, and to the glory of God. To begin I have two underlying questions that I want you to think about as I progress through this sermon. What is the hungriest you have ever been? And what were you hungry for? What is the hungriest you have ever been? And what were you hungry for? When it comes to food, sometimes you will hear people say, I'm hungry, but I don't know what I want to eat, right? Um, I've said it several times. I'm sure some of you have said it yourselves. But I want you to know that is truly a late 19th century and 20, 21st century Western culture type of question. Can you picture someone from a third world country besides the leader saying, I'm hungry, but I don't know what I want to eat? And there are even some places within America where food is so scarce that you would hardly hear anybody say, I'm hungry, but I don't know what I want to eat. Very similar to that. In Jesus's day, the majority of the people lived below the poverty level as roughly half of the population served as someone's servant or bond servant or slave. So in our text today, When Jesus mentioned something about hunger and thirst, the people could identify with those conditions. Many would have been curious as to what he might have said next since thousands of people died yearly from malnutrition. They wanted someone who could speak to their needs, someone who was able to bring relief in some form or fashion. They were no different from every single one of us. Every person ever born Has an eternal and internal desire to be filled, to be satisfied. Some try to find it in love or lust because they want to fill it for fulfill it externally. Some try to find it in money and the things that money can buy. The problem is that without Jesus Christ and the life changing power of the gospel, Everything else is vanity. Every other way is elusive and empty. King Solomon compared it to chasing after the wind in the book of Ecclesiastes. I believe he sums it up best when he writes, I have seen everything that is done under the sun and behold, all is vanity and a striving after wind in chapter one. Then in chapter 2, beginning at verse 4, he goes into detail concerning some of the things that he himself had accomplished. For example, he writes, I made great works. I built houses and planted vineyards for myself. I made myself gardens and parks and planted in them all kinds of fruit trees. I made myself pools from which to water the forest of growing trees. I also gathered for myself silver and gold and the treasure of kings and provinces. I got singers, both men and women, and many concubines, the delight of the sons of man. Then I considered all that my hands had done and the toil I had expended in doing it. And behold, all was vanity and a striving after wind, and there was nothing to be gained under the sun. By the way, when you see the phrase under the sun, which is written 29 times in the book of Ecclesiastes and nowhere else in the Bible, it means to live a life apart from God. To live a life separated from God is to live a life where you only have an earthly perspective. That truly is an empty and fruitless life. In chapter 2, verse 23 of Ecclesiastes, Solomon said, For the person who lives a life like that, all of their days are full of sorrow and their work is a vexation. Even in the night their heart does not rest. Why is that? Because all of our accomplishments and busyness apart from God and an eternal perspective will be lost in the grander scheme of things and will soon be forgotten according to chapter 1 and verse 11 of Ecclesiastes. So once again, I ask you, what is the hungriest you have ever been and what were you hungry for? Whether food or money or prestige and power or acceptance and love, whatever it is, apart from a life that is devoted to Jesus Christ, these things can never satisfy. In other words, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Now, my three big questions uh, for you this morning are, number one, what is it to hunger and thirst for righteousness? Number two, who is it that hungers and thirsts? For righteousness? And number three, are you hungering and thirsting for the righteousness of Christ? Follow along, please, as I read Matthew chapter 5, verses 1 through through 6. And as I said, it's page 759 in your Pew Bibles. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain. And when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Please pray with me. Father, you have, through your grace, mercy, and love, blessed us. Throughout all of our lives, even when we didn't know you, 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 feel, you still gave us laughter and, and, and you gave us love and you, you healed us from sickness, Lord God. But when we came to know you as your children, by grace, through faith, you placed your, your, your laws upon our hearts and you gave us the, a desire to follow you through your Son. And no one can come to you except through your son. And you showed us that through your word, your special revelation, your, your particular revelation that, that, that it is like nothing else in the world, inspired by your spirit. Thank you. Lord God, I pray this morning you would uh, use that same spirit, your Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity, to work in us, to to, to remove darkness, to open our eyes, that we may see truth, to open our hearts, that we we may receive it, to crush the pride that has been with us for so long, if it has still uh, lingered to this point, to crush it, to remove it, that we may bow down before you and say, I need you. I need you. Please guide me, Lord, as I, as I try to uh, teach incredibly accurate, Lord God, and clearly so that your people may receive every word. May no word fall to the ground. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Question number one, what is it to hunger and thirst for righteousness? In Jesus' sermon this day on this mountainside, he preached about a type of blessedness or happiness the people had never known in a way they had never heard before. As a matter of fact, when you get to the end of his sermon in Matthew chapter 729, the writer Matthew says that uh, the people was uh, amazed at how he taught them. And they said, uh, or Matthew said, he was teaching them as one having authority and not as their scribes. Not only were Jesus's words, the words of a king, But when he spoke, he spoke with such authority that he did not need to quote anybody else unless it was someone who was prophesying about him. He simply spoke as king of kings and lord of lords. So in our text, as Jesus speaks of those who hungered and, 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 and thirsted for righteousness, he's separating the idea of hungering and thirsting for physical food and water from hungering and thirsting for the good, just, and totally satisfying spiritual food that only comes from God. So the Greek uh, verbs that Jesus, is, that Jesus uses to describe this hunger and thirst are incredibly powerful. Paino means to suffer deep, excruciating hunger. While the, the word dipseo carries the idea of someone who has a passionate, almost insufferable thirst. And then Jesus constructs his sentence with the strongest physical emotions as a continuous action, a present participle, as if to say these are the ones who are always hungering and these are the ones who are always Thirsting. So if you can imagine someone who only eats two slices of bread and drinks only one cup of water a day for years, that's the picture he's painting. Someone who has a constant hunger and a constant thirst. And those whose desires are that way towards righteousness, Jesus says, these are the ones who will be satisfied. Since righteousness is a must have, We must ask ourselves, what is the biblical definition of righteousness? Well, according to Scripture, it's to be justified before God, free from guilt and sin, which leads to a right relationship with God. And this righteousness does not come from man, but from God, who himself is totally righteous. This is why we need the gospel, the good news that Jesus alone saves sinners. He died for the sins of all who believe, and God credited our accounts with Christ's righteousness. So now we have been justified before God, a.k.a. declared righteous. As Second Corinthians chapter 5 verse 21 uh, says, for our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, that in him we might become the righteousness of God. What is Jesus not saying? He is not saying that only those who live righteous 24-7 will inherit the kingdom of God. If that were the case, none of us would make it. None of us would get in. What he is saying is that those whose greatest desire, desire is to do the right thing, according to God's definition of what is right, these are the ones who will be satisfied. That's what we're looking for, right? Whether it's partially um, here on this earth through our contentment in Christ or sometime in the future at the consummation, restoration, and glorification of all things, they will be satisfied. We don't get so caught up In the things of this world, where where every time we turn on the news, we're panicking as if God is taking a nap. No, we look to the heavens. We trust that God knows what he is doing. We don't understand everything. And when we get too far and outside of ourselves, that's when we lose it. That's when we start saying things we shouldn't say. That's when we start condemning the government and and those in, in leadership instead of praying for them. Just think within yourself. Do you pray for them more than you complain about them? Think about it. What should we be doing according to several places in the scripture? Whether it's didactic and straight out teaching or it's implied from the text or it's visual and you see it, somebody praying for the king. Why? Because God can control the heart of the king according to the Proverbs, right? It's like water in his hands. He directs it anywhere he wants to. Do you believe it? Is the question. When you find yourself complaining later on when you put the news on, there's your answer. Do you believe that God controls the heart of every leader? No matter what it looks like, that's called faith. That's called trusting in God. Now, in some some circles, they could care less about the, the future glorious kingdom that we're promised. They can clear, they can care less about what God has given us in Christ. Today And they have this saying, right? Don't be so heavenly minded that you're no earthly good. But when you look closely at that culture and even our culture, you would see that that's not really the problem being so heavenly minded in most Christian circles today. The tendency seems to be that today's Christian culture is so earthly-minded that the things of heaven, even the glorious future we are promised, isn't even on their radar. They're not thinking about that time when this perishable will put on imperishable and this mortal flesh will be swallowed up in immortality. Do you know it? To be swallowed up, not just to have a little immortality, but to be swallowed up in it. Do you really know what that means? That means there will be no more depression or anxiety. that, That means there will be no more disease or physical ailments. And most importantly, that means there will be no more sin and death. Our hunger and thirst for righteousness will finally be fully satisfied. And I don't know about you, but I long to stand in the presence of God fully satisfied. Jesus' sermon was not the big change your life in seven easy steps they may have been uh, looking for, but it's exactly what they needed and what we need. Like most of us, they thought their happiness would come if only all of their physical needs were met. But Jesus would demonstrate for them several times throughout his earthly ministry, this just isn't so. Even a few months from this very day that he's preaching, Jesus will feed them until their guts are bursting. So much so that they had 12 baskets of food left over. Yet most of them still came to him the very next day wanting more. Wanting more. And that's what material items do they leave you wanting for more. But as we go through the Beatitudes, each one of them points us to a longer lasting, even eternal fulfillment and joy. Not that anyone gets into heaven by manufacturing these Beatitudes or blessings apart from the saving grace of God. Rather, they act as measuring sticks by which we can test our belonging to Christ or our measure of growth in Christ. One of the most joyous things you can do with your child is to have, have them stand against the wall and measure their, their growth, right? Measure their height. And some kids get so excited by this that they'll go and try and hang on a pole to stretch themselves or hang from the, the top bunk, hoping that they would grow, and then come right back to you and ask you, Measure me again, measure me again, and see if I've grown. Well, that's how we should be in our hunger and thirst for righteousness with every temptation, asking ourselves, Am I growing in my resistance to sin? At every moral fork in the road, contemplating, is this the right thing to do? I believe this was the intent behind the use of the phrase, what would Jesus do? At least in its use at the end of the 19th century by many people, including Charles Spurgeon himself. Right? Right? And that's way before it was repackaged and became a marketing tool and rendered almost useless in its use at the end of the 20th century. When temptation comes, there are times when we all fall short of doing what Jesus would do. But after we have confessed that sin and prayed for a steadfast heart of repentance, we should be eager to measure our growth when that very same temptation comes back around. We should never be content falling to the same sin over and over and over and over. King David said, search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts and see if there be any grievous way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. Psalm 139 verses 23 and 24. David said, search me, try me and lead me. That should be our prayer. That's hungering and thirsting for righteousness. Turning the lens around, the apostle Paul instructs Christians to search themselves when he writes, examine yourselves. And that's a a technical term. It's the equivalent of using a microscope and placing an an, an object under the microscope to see what it is made of. He says, examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves, or do you not realize this about yourselves—that Jesus Christ is in you, unless indeed you fail to meet the test. Second Corinthians thirteen and verse five. Some of us are so super confident we're in the faith when we have very little reason to be, because there's very little evidence that we're in the faith. Paul said, "Test yourselves," and Jesus gives us several ways for us to practically test ourselves right here in the Beatitudes. For instance, covering the first uh, four Beatitudes, when we recognize by the grace of God that we were poor in spirit, a.k.a. spiritually bankrupt, we pleaded for the Lord to save us. And since then, as we continually are confronted by our spiritual poverty, we hunger and thirst for righteousness. If that's us, we check that off. We pass that test. First test. Also, since we were made new creations in Christ, there should be some degree of mourning over our sin and the sins of society as we increase in our awareness of the depth and broadness of the sins within us and of society. All of this causes us to hunger and thirst for righteousness to come bursting forth. If that's us, we can also check that off. We've passed that test. Recognizing our spiritual poverty and deep mourning over sin should remove pride and arrogance and produce Christ-like meekness. All of these act as tests—tests to to measure ourselves and our growth, not just saying, well, I was baptized at five, so I'm good. It doesn't matter what I do because the blood of Christ, Christ cleanses me. Paul wrote Test Yourselves for for a reason, to this church, for a reason. He observed them. He looked at them. He heard their testimony. But as you read the book of 1 Corinthians, you see many were living lives that did not produce any fruit, right? The seed of Christ has been planted in. There should be some fruit coming up. Nobody's perfect. I'm not claiming perfectionism for anybody in Christ. It's the very fact that we are faulty, that we need Christ, We recognize that if the Lord were to call us to himself and hold us accountable for our lives, we know deep down, the Lord will say, depart from me, you worker of lawlessness. I never knew you. But you're breathing today for a purpose. Even you right here, you can repent. You could turn. You could come, you can confess your sins to Christ. It's like any parent with a child who keeps doing wrong and keeps telling his parent. I didn't do anything wrong, but you know he did. All you want him to do is say, I was wrong. That's it. God says, confess your sins. Your sins are open and naked before me. Confess them and repent. Come to me and I will give you rest. There will be moments when the most dedicated Christian will have failure. Failure right? Outright disobedient to the Lord. But that should not be the major part of our life or what we're known for. Which brings us to question number two. Who is it that hungers and thirsts for righteousness? Building off of that same theme, every so often you'll come across a churchgoer who tries to justify their worldly lifestyle by comparing themselves to the Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 7. They'll tell you something like, for I delight in the law of the Lord in my inner being. God knows my heart. But the very next minute, I'm taken captive to the law of sin that dwells in my flesh. I'm so wretched. And it'll sound like a great confession, but then they'll go off and continue to live in their fleshly ways. Arrogant, proud, conceited, full of lust, gossiping, slanderous, divisive, etc., etc. To their harm, they ignore how Paul goes on to explain how we might gain the victory over all of our struggles. All of the struggles that Christians have, one by one, knocking them down like bowling pins, walking forward. The sin is coming. The flesh is angry. Satan's over here through this person, whatever. The world is saying you should be doing this. The church should be over here and you're taking it in instead of saying, no, I'm going to walk in the spirit. That's what I'm going to do, right? In the very next chapter, Romans chapter 8, verse 5, the apostle Paul writes, for those who live according to the flesh, set their minds on the things of the flesh. But, key word, but. Those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. Where are you setting your mind? In other words, what are you hungering and thirsting for on a daily basis? Is it the things of the world which are fleshly or the things of heaven where you find righteousness? The evidence will declare it. When speaking in Matthew chapter 7 of false prophets who were setting their minds on the flesh, Jesus said, you will recognize them by their fruits. <laughs> somebody somebody messed with that clock because there's, no there's no way that much time went by. We're going to find out. The Lord knows. But somebody sped that clock up on me real quick. Here's the thing. Most of us want to believe that people are basically good. We want to believe that, right? Right, And so we don't always pay enough attention to what people reveal about themselves. For instance, when we're trying to help someone make it through a rough patch in their life, if we're not discerning, how will we know if this person is truly a brother or or sister who's just making bad choices and needs guidance and encouragement? Or... Is this person really an unbeliever who needs to be evangelized because of the fleshly fruit they keep producing? We also must be able to discern whether we're having an impact on our unsaved friends for the glory of God or when it's time to distance ourselves from someone who's actually a spiritual sniper. Years ago, I used to have daily discussions with an atheist friend, and I use that term friend very loosely right he looked just like me as a matter of fact but just a little shorter and he would offer what were supposed to be scientific proofs of evolution so i told him christians have no problem with real science dna was discovered through real science medicine that works was created by real science if it's observable measurable testable and repeatable it's real science macroevolution is not science at all it's a theory even darwin called it a theory so one day when, when, when uh, the atheist and I were having a random conversation, he told me how he would go on Christian dating websites. I want you to catch this. I want you to hear this. He would go on Christian dating websites and date Christian women because according to him, they were more naive and he would be able to accomplish his fleshly goals at a cheaper cost. All he had to do was quote some Bible verses and go with them to church once or twice As my patience with him began to disappear, I told him all of your talk about science being the real reason you can't believe in Christianity is just a sham. The real reason you won't come to the light of Christ is due to the fact that you love the darkness rather than the light because the things you are doing are evil. I said you love sin too much to let it go. That's the purpose of your life and you are on your way Hell. For those who live according to the flesh, set their minds on the things of the flesh. And we all must be wise enough to know when it's time to distance ourselves from spiritual snipers who are trying to bring you down their road. With that said, I must confess, apart from the grace, mercy, and spirit of God, I might have been just like him. All acts of unrighteousness are going to be condemned by God. But all acts of righteousness are because of the spirit of God. The grace and mercy of God. All acts that are, that are, that are good all come from God himself. It's not of us. Because of the spirit of God, we are able to put to death the wicked deeds of the body, and live a life that is glorifying to God, Romans 8, verse 13. The third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit, who is mentioned only once in chapters 1 to 7 in the book of Romans, is mentioned nearly 20 times in chapter 8 alone. And in this one chapter, we learn that for the Christian, he frees us from sin and death, verses 2 and 3. He gives us strength for victory over our unredeemed flesh. Verses 5 to 13. He confirms our adoption as God's children. Verses 14 uh, to 16. And he guarantees our ultimate victory in Christ. Verses 17 to 30. Because of him, we have been freed, strengthened, adopted, and guaranteed to be victorious. All of this comes from God. God has freely given us everything. So we are and shall be satisfied in Christ. And it's all because of our union with Christ. John Newton once said, Our righteousness is in him and our hope depends not upon the exercise of grace in us, but upon the fullness of grace and love in him and upon his obedience unto death. Newton was stressing (coughs) that our union with Christ and his righteousness was purchased by Christ and confirmed by God. This stands in direct contrast to the self righteousness of the Pharisees who are listening to the Sermon on the Mount very closely. Christianity speaks to those who are seeking God's righteousness rather than attempting to establish a righteousness of their own. Jesus, the Son of God, offers Himself as the bread that cures our hunger and the living water that quenches our thirst. Therefore, we don't have to do what our flesh is telling us to do in order to be satisfied. And we should expect the masses to reject him by doing what their flesh is telling them to do, but not us who are called by his name. However, unfortunately, we sometimes reject him. How do we reject him, you ask? Well, first off, keep in mind, there are two forms of rejection. Temporary rejection as in Peter's three denials of knowing Jesus, and ultimate rejection, as in Judas's betrayal of Jesus. And I want to spend a moment speaking of how we, we temporarily reject Jesus. One way we do this is by replacing our trust in him with trusting in something or someone else we believe will bring us great satisfaction for a time. We see this in Jeremiah chapter 2, verse 13, where God describes the nation of Israel's common behavior, which serves as a warning to all of us. There he says, for my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. Within the nation of Israel, there was a mixture, a mixture of believers and unbelievers, and unfortunately, many times the believers follow the ways of the unbelievers for a time. God, tra- God charges them with two evils. Outright forsaking him was one evil and replacing him with idols was another. They intermittently replaced God with idols, a.k.a. broken cisterns. Now cisterns were used for holding uh, liquids, right, whether water or wine. Right? From pitchers to wells. God is saying, my people have rejected me. Some have verbally rejected me, but most have replaced me. Their fountain of life-giving water that never ends with false gods. They have placed their trust in things or people that they think will provide them with life. But in and of those things, um, they can't bring what my people are looking for. They can't sustain the very thing my people are looking for eternal life. Only I can do that. So we see them go through the cycle some of us are very familiar with, right? God blesses them. They sin against God. God chastens them. They repent. God blesses them. They sin against God. God chastens them. They repent, right? So forth and so on. As pastor uh, Matthew Shores at Woodside, where I preach, um, what he would say is sin is stupid, Sin is stupid. It's replacing your worship of God with something or someone you deem more valuable than God. It's not necessarily an outright rejection of God. No, we would never uh, do that, right? Most of us. We uh, We may not even recognize it until God removes it or them, and we're devastated. We're devastated. God does not just sit back. And watch his children dwell in idolatry. The Lord actually disciplines the one he loves. And chastises every son he receives. According to Hebrews chapter 12 verses 6 and 7. Some of us don't like that. We'll even say, maybe later on today. But I don't know what I would do if I didn't have fill in the blank. Fill in the blank. Every possession we own, every venture we accomplish should not be placed as uh, uh, the greatest thing, the greatest love of all, right? Right? The world's system, desires, and beliefs should not consume our affections. And if any of us should find ourselves chasing hard after this world's system, desires, and beliefs, the Bible as a whole screams to us, turn! Turn! Respond humbly to the Spirit of God and run to Jesus. Don't wait. Because there you'll find a feast to fill your empty soul. Today is the day of salvation. Today is the day to take inventory of our lives and ask ourselves, what am I hungry for? What am I thirsty for? Is it it power? It's addictive. Is it possessions? It's fleeting. Is it praise? That belongs to God. For some of us, our entire lives can be compared to a day at the amusement park, riding on nothing but roller coasters. We spend so much time waiting on ridiculously long lines because this ride promises to be more exciting than the last. Some of us love the rush. While some of us are scared half to death, not knowing what's going to happen at the next turn. But when the ride is over, even most of the scared ones will say, that was great. Let's go get on another one. Why is that? Because being made in the image of God causes everyone to look for something outside of themselves to find happiness and satisfaction. But sin has corrupted the worship gene. So instead of seeking those things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God, we start out from birth, seeking happiness and contentment from a broken world that can never deliver what it promises. Think about Moses. He spoke to God in the burning bush. He saw God's power in the plagues and in the parting of the Red Sea. He submitted to God's uh, leading through the clouds by day and the fire by night and personally drank God's water from a rock when he thirsted and ate bread from heaven when he was hungry. Yet Moses said, God, I want to see your glory. Moses hungered and thirsted for Christ's righteousness, which brings us to question number three. Are you hungering and thirsting for Christ's righteousness? Each And every day we all have moral decisions to make and we have to ask ourselves, do I continue doing what I want to do or do I live for him who died for me and satisfies all of my needs? Apart from Christ's righteousness, there is only self-righteousness. Apart from Christ's righteousness, we are like people who are suffering from a painful disease and long to be relieved of the pain, but will not bother to find out the root cause of the pain. We don't bother to find out that the only real happiness in life comes from the one who created us. And he created us in such a way that the only time we experience true and lasting joy is when we are imitating him. That's why he gave Christians his spirit and made us new creations so that we may imitate him. That's why we can be compassionate, loving, and forgiving on our jobs, even on jobs where incompetence and laziness reign. That's why we can be kind, loving, and faithful when our spouse is not. To hunger and thirst for Christ's righteousness means when I'm not compassionate, loving, kind, and forgiving, I recognize that now I am the one in sin. I am the one in sin. No matter who sinned against me to, quote unquote, make me angry. And I say, quote unquote, because nobody can make you, nobody has the power to make you something that wasn't already inside of you, right? What do I mean by that? Now, some of you are saying, wait, this guy's crazy. What do I mean by that? Jesus said, Jesus said, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. The good person out of his good treasure brings forth good and the evil person out of his evil treasure brings forth evil. I tell you on the day of judgment, people will give account for every careless word they speak. For by your words, you will be justified and by your words, you will be condemned. Matthew chapter 12 verses 35 to 37. I need you to know where it is at so you don't say that crazy pastor from Woodside said. No, you check Matthew chapter 12 and read it in context and you can call me to say, hey, Brother, I have an issue, or hey, brother, you're right. I'll take either one. So, what is he saying? When the heart of a good person, meaning one whose goodness has been imputed to them from Christ's righteousness, when their heart is being squeezed by the trials of life, some form of goodness will still come out of their mouth. Whether it's thanksgiving to God for sustaining them through this trial or comforting those who are going through the trial with you but when an angry person even those who may have been suppressing their anger for years has their heart squeezed by the trials of life sustained bitterness vulgarity even an unquenchable anger comes forth And I understand there is such a thing as righteous indignation, but this isn't that. Blasphemy against God and evil committed against his people has not made them angry. But out of the abundance of anger that was already in their heart, their mouth speaks. To prove my point, they're probably getting angry with me right now. But don't get angry with me. Like I said, see Jesus. Back to the text. When Jesus said, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they... Shall be satisfied, we have to ask ourselves what type of righteousness should we be hungering and thirsting for? Is it an earthly righteousness where justice and equity is granted for everyone who is oppressed? Or is it a legal righteousness which most of the Jewish nation was eagerly pursuing? I believe Jesus was looking deeper than both of these areas. The type of righteousness that Jesus is speaking of in this text is the justifying righteousness of Christ, which once again has been imputed to us by God and received by faith. Jesus is saying instead of earnestly desiring the things that make you happy, seek the outworking of salvation that was freely established within you and sincerely and fervently desire to be holy and just. Keep in mind, When Jesus said this, he himself had recently come out of 40 days of testing in the wilderness. So he wasn't living that happy life where everything went his way. He rejected the authority, the wealth, and the sustenance offered to him by Satan and chose the righteousness that aligns with his father, God. Jesus set the standard for what it means to hunger and thirst after righteousness. So in his sermon thus far... Jesus has said, blessedness is spiritual poverty, mourning over sin, meekness that leads to humility, and hungering and thirsting for righteousness. For the people who exemplify these traits, they shall possess the kingdom of heaven, be comforted, they shall inherit the earth, and they shall be satisfied. So what is it to be satisfied? I think the 18th century Baptist pastor John Gill nailed it when he said, those who hunger and thirst for righteousness will be so satisfied with Christ's righteousness that they shall never seek for any other righteousness as a justifying one in the sight of God. This being full, perfect, sufficient, and entirely complete. End quote. The very thing that so many are willing to sacrifice their lives for is the very thing God is going to give freely to his people. Fulfillment, contentment, joy. The world is ours. Others are just borrowing it for a time, but we shall receive a better version of it. Let me close with this. Never in the history of mankind was there ever a desire to be holy, which God was not willing to gratify. And the good news that Jesus died, was buried, and rose from the grave, thus defeating death has provided a way to satisfy all who truly desire to be holy. To those who are unsaved and believe they are too far gone for God to save them, let me assure you that as long as you are still breathing, God is able to grant you a new heart, a new mind, and a new life in Christ. If today... You have a new and strange desire for righteousness. Perhaps that's why you're here. Perhaps today is your day of salvation. And perhaps right now, God is calling you to believe and follow Jesus the Christ as Lord and Savior. The promise is for all who hunger and thirst for righteousness. For they shall be satisfied. Let us pray. Father, I thank you. I thank you that you have provided a way to fulfill all of our hunger, our yearning, Lord, knowing within ourselves that something is wrong with this world, knowing within ourselves that something is wrong with us. I pray, Lord, for those who are still in darkness, those who are still groping for things they think will satisfy. Lord, please turn the lights on that they may see the things they are groping for will only leave them destitute will leave them stricken and in the end will leave them in hell Lord God please give them the power to turn to you please guide their feet Lord to, to, to your son Jesus as no one can come to him unless you draw him Lord God you draw them to him please save on this day